Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So just uh, by way of a brief introduction of what we just did today on the first Sunday of Lent, uh, we, uh, did, uh, we prayed the Great Litany. And if you're looking for a Lenten form of devotion, um, praying the Great Litany every day through the season of Lent is powerful. It's a uh, wonderful prayer from the church that uh, covers the entire gambit of life. And if you noticed, we uh, did a, an interesting procession that wasn't because, um, you know, it just was a really long prayer and we needed a little more time to get around. Uh, the reason why we processed like that is on one level what we're doing is liturgically is making an infinity symbol. And so uh, to remind us that um, our prayers go to a God who is now and is always present, uh, even in the deepest uh, of our woes. When we cry to him, he is there and ready to deliver, ready to hear us, because he is a good Lord. So this is the tradition for the first Sunday of Lent. And also on the first Sunday of Lent, as I'm going to say in a minute, is we typically look at Jesus in the wilderness and his uh, time of 40 days in the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. But I want to begin a little earlier, and I want to take us to the story of Noah. Unfortunately, the story of Noah has been isolated and co-opted as simply a children's story. You know, you remember that? You know, the Lord sent rain down, and Noah gathered the animals by twosies, twosies, rhinoceroses, and kangaroosies. You know, am I the only one who heard that song? But anyway, you know, but... I, I think, I believe this story should be taught to children in an appropriate manner, because uh, it's a little gritty when you read it. However, um, I am a huge proponent of saving Noah from the felt board, you know, the Sunday school felt board. Uh, uh, for the story of Noah, specifically the first part, and if you want to hear some of my dark room humor, I'll tell you some of the felt board stories that I think should be from the Old Testament, but I won't say it from the pulpit. But anyway, um, uh, the story of Noah, specifically the first part, is a story about God's judgment upon the wickedness of humanity. It says that the Lord looked at the heart of man. If you think you're the Bible says we're basically good, wrong. It says the Lord looked at the heart of man and saw that it was exceedingly wicked, and so it's about God's judgment on the wickedness of humanity by way of a flood. By way of a flood. Now, there is an important connection with chapter 8, which is the previous chapter. In chapter 7, it just rains and rains and rains and rains. And could you imagine at first, I mean, the psychological terror of this story is intense. You know, first everybody's kind of laughing at Noah and his family as they're in the ark. Then pretty soon you hear the pounding on the door, let us in, let us in. And then probably the screams of terror. And then just silence. As the judgment of God falls upon the earth. And in chapter 8, Noah's been out there, they've been floating around for a long time. And you know, they're on this pilgrimage and they're wondering where in the world is God. And Noah first sends up a raven a raven, and that raven flies to and fro, conveying that judgment is not over. And then at the end of chapter 8, 
Noah sends forth a second bird, a dove. We know them as pigeons. And it comes back. It's a symbol of peace. And it eventually returns to Noah with an olive branch, conveying to Noah. And what it's conveying is something very important. It's conveying to Noah that the judgment of God has passed. And there is now the emergence of a new creation. And never again would God destroy the earth by way of water. Now, this of course is demonstrated in our reading from our Old Testament today, from Genesis chapter 9. And God establishes his covenant with Noah and his descendants with the sign of a bow. A rainbow, possibly, but definitely what it conveys in Hebrew is an instrument of war. However, instead, this bow is pointed not down on the earth, but up towards the sky to God himself, articulating that what the world needs is a savior for a lasting new creation. And the gospel writers, they have all of this in mind when they're putting together their gospels. And this all connects to Christ. You see, and this is one of the reasons why um, uh, Mark talked, we, we, we include Jesus' baptism again on the first Sunday of Lent. That's typically a first Sunday after Epiphany reading. But when Jesus, you see, is submerged into the waters of the Jordan River for a baptism of repentance, the sinless Son of God, who is the embodiment of the whole world here, the second Adam, he sinks under the waters of condemnation and judgment to identify with us in every way. For Mark in his gospel, this is the beginning of what's called Jesus' perfect and total active obedience. See, if it's just about his death, then you're justified. But God calls you righteous in Jesus because of Jesus' life and his work for you. So you see his perfect and total obedience for us to take away the sins of the world. And this is my first point. You see, when the law is proclaimed, well, like the raven, it declares judgment. And it declares that the wrath is never finished. However, when the gospel is rightly proclaimed, it always comes to you as a message of peace. You see, when Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, not as a patriotic bald eagle, <laughs> but as a dove. Connection to Noah's story. Jesus emerges out of the water of judgment. He emerges as that Savior, the fulfillment of that bow in the sky, as God's message of peace and reconciliation to us. Here emerges God's first fruits of a new creation. Now, as I said, traditionally, the first Sunday of Lent, we remember Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, not necessarily his baptism. But Mark's gospel, as I said a couple of weeks ago, is abbreviated, and it's action-packed. A lot of people think it's St. Peter's gospel right before he's executed, and Mark's jotting it all down. 
And Mark writes, right after Jesus' baptism, he comes up and he says, And the Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. The Greek word for drive is a powerful word. It's a, it's a forceful word. It's a word of violence. It's the same word used when Jesus drives out demons. So in other words, after Jesus' baptism, he doesn't have his best life now. Rather, practically still dripping wet, he is forced out for 40 days with no food and drink, nothing to support him. He's driven out into the wilderness. And yes, this is the desert, but the word wilderness there is not simply desert. This is a spiritual wilderness, which takes Jesus right directly into confrontation with Satan himself. And at this moment, Satan has the home field advantage. Now, there are all sorts of Old Testament connections we could make right here. But I want to get at the existential. I want to get where you're at. I don't know about you, but there have been moments, especially this last year, when I have felt as if I have been thrust into the wilderness. And it's in those moments when I'm thrust into the wilderness when God seems hidden, that I think we're all kind of, we've been conditioned to ask, what's going on, God? We're conditioned to believe, maybe, <clears throat> that God's abandoned us. We're conditioned to believe and ask the question, why have you forsaken me? Why aren't I living my best life now? We've been conditioned to believe that somehow testing and trials are a sign of the absence of God. When in fact the testimony of the scriptures is, nothing could be further from the truth. The road of faith, the road of faith always leads us into the wilderness, a place of testing and trials. Because the road of faith, the road that follows Jesus is actually the way of the cross. And the testimony of the scriptures is that God works through the trials to form and mature his people. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they guide me. You see, in the valley of the shadow of death, things... If you've ever gone hiking, you'll notice when you're up at the top of these mountains, things aren't growing. They've got great views. But it's down in the valley of the shadow of death where thieves and wild creatures dwell. The things actually grow. Luther put it this way. When we face times of trial and temptations, we shouldn't doubt God, but rather rejoice all the more and be glad because God is at work to strengthen our faith. And this is my second point. From baptism to wilderness is the road of Jesus. From baptism to wilderness, eventually to the cross. 
You see, the cross always comes before any sort of glory. This is how God works. Be encouraged. Be encouraged as we continue to go through 2020 all over again. Be encouraged. Your wilderness experience is not a place of abandonment. Rather, it's a place of formation. It's a place where your patience is being honed and your hope is strengthened. For it's in the wilderness when we feel at our wit's end There, we are most acutely aware of our need for Jesus. And interestingly enough, we're often most reflective of him and his grace in the world. Because we're not standing on our own two feet. Now Mark, he doesn't go into the details about Jesus and his temptation. Doesn't do it. However, Matthew and Luke tell us he was tempted in the wilderness three times by Satan in three very specific ways. Remember the first was turn these stones into bread. The second was chuck yourself off the tide of the temple because you're obviously the son of God. God will save you. And then the third was just bow down to me and I'm going to give you all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil had the authority to do that. So it's three temptations that we all face. Uh, One, uh, satisfy your needs right now. Uh, We do that every time you, what runs through your mind is, I deserve this. I deserve this. Nobody understands what I'm going through, and I deserve this. I've been in the wilderness for 40 days. I deserve this bread. The second is, is what God said about you. You know, he said at your baptism, you are my well-beloved son. You are my well-beloved daughter. With you, I'm well-pleased. Oh, I don't believe that. Look what's going on. And then the other way is take the the glory before the cross. Take the easy way out. I'm always doing that. And just cut this corner. Each and every one of us is tempted this way in some form or fashion. Yet as the author of Hebrews writes, Jesus was tempted as we are in every way, yet without sin. God relates to you completely. You can't relate to him, but he relates to you completely. Because you and I mess up. As I just said, we doubt. We're unfaithful. However, this is what it's all about. This is what, how Jesus fulfills that covenant, that bow up in the sky. Through every stage of life, Christ does it perfectly. And he gives to us his perfection so that in him, in the midst of our imperfection, we might know that in Jesus everything's okay. I love how St. Augustine once put it. All the commandments of God are kept when what is not kept is forgiven. And in Jesus Christ, your sins are totally forgiven. And you can and will face the trials that are ahead because Christ is at work within you. And this is my third point. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness after his baptism. Not for Jesus' sake, but for ours. Because you and I in our wilderness, don't need simply help 
but complete and total saving. I mean, this is the thing going back to what I preached a couple of weeks ago. Jesus doesn't come and say, let me dazzle you with my miracles. I'm an all-around well and wonderful entertainer. No, he comes. He comes and lives the lives we couldn't perfectly so that we might be perfect in him. Therefore, on our wilderness journey, we daily place our trust in Christ, who has gone ahead of us. And through it all, we appeal, as St. Peter says, to the gifts of our baptism. I am baptized. And we appeal to that not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Because in our baptisms, water now used by God not as a flood of destruction, but as a flood of everlasting life. And all the gifts of Christ have been poured into your hearts to enable you to face the wildernesses that are ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let us stand and affirm our faith by saying the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven.